Welcome to the SCG Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for our weekend services in person in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our service live online at scgchurch.org or live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thanks for listening. All right, well, good morning. Yeah, it's been one of those weeks. Yeah, yeah, one of the gifts of uh, having young children is the things they bring home from school. Uh, this is one of them, is uh, the, the, the flu. So I guess it's my turn, um, so I will stay away. Uh, but uh, I'm heavily medicated, so we're all going to have fun this morning, right? <laughs> right on. Uh, anyway, glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us, thanks for being here this morning. A uh, couple things that you heard in announcements, one of which is this is kind of the, the last week before we start Rooted. And so if you don't know anything about Rooted, it is a 10-week program that we do here. Um, and I'm actually going to be talking a bit about it today. Uh, but uh, it is something where we think it is, is equally as important as being here on the weekends. And so we say, like, we try to really do two things, get people in circles and in rows. And so right now you're in rows, and that's great. And we want to get you in a circle, which is like a group. And so um, this is at Rooted is one of the best ways to do it. It's a 10-week program, and, um, and it has kind of transformed uh, our church, really, in the last few years that we've been doing it. So my so that we have been building a, uh, a building, which is called the CLC, the Community Life Center, which is right across the way. And the good news is, although it's not done, it's now usable. And so we're going to be able to use it for this next session of, uh, yeah, of Rooted. So we're very excited about that. Um, and it's going to be open afterward if you want to poke your head in there and kind of see what's been happening and, uh, and check it out. Um, so make sure you jump in and you do that. Oh, and, oh, and we have Rooted for Kids too. So at the same time that um, parents, if you do the Sunday session, uh, you can drop off your kids at 830 and you don't have to see them till noon. It is great. It is worth the money right there because they're learning, because they're learning. <laughs> Jesus is touching. Their, okay, whatever. All right. Anyway. Um, so uh, make sure you get, you get involved there, and they can answer any questions that you have out on the, out on the patio. Um, so I've been listening to a, um, a podcast recently, and um, I, I, it's one of my favorite things is, is listening to podcasts, so I'm always looking for new ones. And one of the ones that I just came across, it's called This Cultural Moment, and it is a podcast by a couple pastors who, uh, one lives in Portland, the other lives in Melbourne. And they're discussing where we're at as a culture, like, kind of, what does it look like to live faithfully as a Christian within a post, post-Christian secular society? And so they're wrestling with these different ideas and kind of trying to figure out, okay, the world has changed, um, especially in these cities, and I would consider ourselves probably in a more post-Christian area as well here on the West Coast, is what does it look like to live and, and kind of what's the, the cultural temperature? And so I was thinking about this question is, how would I describe the cultural moment that we're in right now? Because things have changed pretty drastically in the last few years, and not just due to COVID, but for other things as well. And so I came up with just four words that I think would summarize maybe where we're at as a culture. A couple are obvious, a couple maybe not so obvious. So the first two that I think are pretty obvious, and and you would probably have said as well, is um, it's a time that's been disrupted and divided. All right, so disrupted, pretty self-explanatory, you know, the last two years has disrupted everybody's life in, in numerous different ways. And divided, well, that mostly has to do with uh, politics and ideology, is we see a nation that seems to be increasingly divided over some political issues. And it's not just like on a national level, but it seems to be happening on a personal level, where I continue to hear conversations and, and, and stories of people who said, well, I had a friend for 20 or 30 years, and in this last season, we just, we can't even get along anymore. We're not friends because we just can't agree politically. Then I see it happening in families as well. 
And so I think those two are obvious, but there's some stuff that's happening underneath as well. Um, the, the, the other two I had were disillusioned and disoriented. I, uh, disillusioned is, if I think about the major institutions within our culture, um, things like the government and politics and education and media and entertainment, all the major institutions that shape our society, um, I, I would say that I've been pretty disillusioned. And no matter where you're at politically or in your faith, or I think that you would probably look at those things and say, you know, I'm not sure if I trust them as much as I did. Now, the trust may have been naive previously, but when I think about all those major institutions, there's at least part of it which I go, ooh, I'm not sure if I trust you anymore. And then finally, disorienting or disoriented. Uh, it feels like the moral landscape within uh, the United States has changed. Uh, over the last 10 years, things that I would have never thought would become normal have not only been normalized, but they've been celebrated. And so I've really been wrestling with, and as a church, if you've been here for the last year, we've been kind of wrestling with what does it look like to be a Christian who lives faithfully within this, this cultural moment? And so I, um, I started to do some research. I started to do some some reading, just trying to figure out how do I make sense of this? What happened exactly? I came across an author and he said, part of the job of the pastor and the apologist now is it used to be that the pastor apologist would get up and um, he would explain to the culture, here's what the church believes. But now it's kind of changing, or at least there's a, a second part to it, which is now we have to come to the church and say, now this is what the culture believes. Because they're so different that we don't quite understand them any longer. And we need to understand them for a couple reasons. One, because if we want to reach people with the, with the message, we have to understand where they're coming from. But the other is, we don't realize how much we have been shaped by the culture around us. Things that we think are just so intuitive, natural, obvious, may not be. They may be because we have lived in this culture and been shaped by it. And so I read this, uh, this book, and I've read it once, and I'm going through it a second time because it's, it's pretty deep, it's long, I'm, I'm not that smart, so I, I struggle with, you know, trying to, you know, pronounce big words, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm reading this book, and it's uh, by a guy named Carl Truman, and it's The Making of the Modern Self, I think is what it's called. There's a longer title to it, but uh, The Rise of the Modern Self. And uh, he's a, is a historian, and what he does is he outlines the major philosophical ideas and influences that have caused this shift in the modern Western mind. And so here's the thought experiment that he begins the book with. He says, imagine that we sat down 50 years ago with either your grandfather or your great-grandfather, and you were to explain to him this sentence, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Not only do you need to explain that to him, but you need to explain why that makes sense. And if you disagree with that statement, you're seen as a bigot. Now, he's not making a statement about sex or sexuality. What he's doing here, and because that's not what the book is about, what he's doing here is he's trying to see, now, just see how quickly things have changed in just a, a short period of time. That we have gone from something which your grandfather, great-grandfather, that, that would have made no sense to them, to now we stand here and we go, well, of course, that, that makes sense to, to, to everybody. Now, you may not agree with it. You might agree with it. It doesn't matter. The point is that things have changed pretty drastically. And so what he wants to do is he wants to figure out what are the philosophical beliefs and assumptions that allows us to believe that, that they didn't believe 50 years ago. And so he starts to under, uh, uh, uncover some of the underlying ideologies um, that has gotten us there. And he argues that the shift, although it feels like it's taken place uh, overnight, um, it really has been taking place for a couple hundred years. 
And this is just where, um, where this ideology has ended up. And again, the book is not about sex or gender or anything like that. It's really about philosophy. It's about worldview. It's about identity. It's about how we determine what the meaning of life is. It's about the big questions. And so he, uh, he outlines, and I'm just going to really quickly see if we can take a moment and understand culture. It's the air that we breathe. It's the water that we swim in. And so I think we got to understand where we're at. Because you'll start to see it's not those people out there. It's us in here. And so here's uh, where he says the, um, this, this road begins. He goes back to the agricultural revolution and he says, oddly enough, this is where the ideology has begun. Because what happened was farming used to be totally dependent upon its environment. That you were um, at, at, the, uh, at the mercy of nature. Is you didn't get to grow your crops um, because you're smart or because you're better than anybody else. It's because nature allowed you to. Meaning like you're dependent upon the rain, upon the soil, upon the location, all that kind of stuff. But he said, as we continue to grow in this uh, agricultural revolution, uh, what we were able to do was we were able to develop pesticides and manipulate the soil and genetics. and, And it allowed us, humanity, to overcome our environment and even nature itself. And he says that this trend continued. It started there, but of course it didn't end there because we see in things like technology and transportation and medicine that we continue to overcome the natural obstacles that were in our way. People that we maybe, um, think about this. If you have a friend that's on the other side of the world, uh, in, in decades past, <clears throat> you would never be able to see them. Like uh, growing up, I could not call a friend. Oh, well, I didn't have a friend. I didn't have a friend. Like I had a friend across the world. But if I had a friend across the world, I was like, I hope I have a friend across the street. But if I had a friend across the world, um, how would I talk to them? I wouldn't. I mean, maybe I could get on a plane, which is revolutionary. But now you know what I can do? I can pick up a smartphone and I can FaceTime them. I can see them face to face. If I want to, if I want to literally be in their presence, I can jump on a plane and I can go. Medicine that once killed, or uh, diseases that once killed people, now we have medicine for. Childbirth was extremely dangerous. Now, fairly common. And so what we've been able to do is we've been able to overcome the natural obstacles that were once in our way. And it has changed the way that we, have see, that we see ourselves and the way that we see ourselves in the world. And so reality is no longer something that we have to conform to. It is something that we can manipulate and shape to our own ends. We've gone from being a part of the created to the creator's. And so then he, he traces the next step to this philosopher, 18th century philosopher named Rousseau. And Rousseau argues that man is born free and good. Like in our natural state. And tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Remember, this is hundreds of years ago. Tell me if any of this sounds familiar as if he couldn't say this today and everybody would agree. He says, man is born free and good in our natural state. We're morally upright. The problem is, is that society has made us sick. It's society's influence on us. If we were able to go back to our natural state, our childlike state, then we would be okay. But the problem is that society's influence, where it puts us in competition with one another, it ends up oppressing and repressing our natural goodness. And so what he does is he moves from looking at, the, looking at being shaped by, and the most important things about us, by the external world, then he moves inward. He moves into this psychological self. And he says, the most important and real thing about us is our inner life. 
It's not about our roles and responsibilities. It's not about our relationships. What is important about us is what happens inside of our hearts. And he actually, uh, he lives up to this because he has four children and immediately gives them over to orphanages, which meant certain death in that day because they would limit his freedom. He would not be able to follow his heart. And so he shunned his responsibility so that he could. Then we have this uh, next figure named Karl Marx. And Karl Marx, of course, you, you've heard of him before and you probably have heard of all of his different philosophical uh, musings. But one of the things that he comes along and he says is, well, the, the enlightenment has proven that God doesn't exist. So I'm not even going to argue for that. Everybody who is smart these days understands there is no God and religion is false. And so what we need to do is we need to eliminate religion, but we need to look at what religion is trying to address because it really has a, it's addressing a real need. And the real need that religion addresses, although it's false, um, the religion is false, the, re, the need is real. And so what we need to do is we need to look at that need. And the need is that we feel alienated in the world. We feel alienated from one another. We feel alienated from our work. We feel, it's like we don't fit in this world. There's something not quite right which the Christian would say, yes, we, we have believed that for a very long time. But he would say, the reason is you feel alienated is not because you've been alienated from a God and this thing called sin is in your way. No, 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 we don't believe any of that superstitious stuff. The reason is because you've been alienated from your work. And so he comes at it and he says, the real issue is economics. And so if you want to be free, we must have a political revolution. We must get rid of religions. We must get rid of our oppressors. The working class might, uh, should rise up against the, um, the elites, and we will, we will take control and power for ourselves. Now, notice what he does here. Is Now, he comes up with this alternate gospel of here's what sin and salvation looks like. But he also gets rid of the supernatural. And he says, everything can be explained within material terms in the world. So your problems are not supernatural and the solution is not supernatural. Your problems are material within this world. And so we can fix them within this world. We have a utopian vision and we can, we can realize it if we will just gather together and head in this direction. And then Nietzsche comes along and he continues to push this. And he says, well, I agree. God doesn't exist. Religion is false. It's all a bunch of superstition. But the problem is, is that people, even atheists like myself, he says, they continue to live off of the capital of Christianity. Meaning we dismiss God and Jesus and all that stuff, but we like all the values that he taught. We like, uh, we like the worldview that he brought. So we're going to keep those things and we're going to direct it. He says, no, no, you have, to, you, have to, you have to rise up and say, no, I'm not going to um, even adopt the values of Christianity if you truly want to be authentic and real. And so he's, he says, we have, to, we have to face up to the reality that although we believe there is such thing as good and evil in the world, there's not. That's just made up. In fact, it's made up by people who are trying to oppress you. And so we have to get rid of this idea of good and evil, and we have to become what he calls the ubermensch, the, the superman. We're going to rise up in power and strength, and we're going to create the future that we want. We're going to become the powerful people. We are going to become God. Not a supernatural version of God, but the rulers of our own destiny. And so um, the next person that comes along is Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, he continues to build on this, religion, false, God, no, but he's an artist. 
And so he sees life as, although there is no ultimate purpose and point to it, and there is no good and evil, I can still have a point to my life. I can still have a purpose. And you know what it is? It's all a performance. He was a performer, and he says all of life is a performance. Think of it like this, is your life is a canvas, and you're the artist, and you can make your life into whatever you want it to be. And so the way that you're going to do it is you're going to look within, and you're going to say, this is who I want to be, and then you are going to perform that into the world, and so people will see you as such. It's as if he knew social media was coming. Is I'm going to create and shape and mold and make this life and this persona, and then I'm gonna play it out in front of the world. And that's what he does. And then he makes this interesting move. So he says, all of life is not about impressing other people. It's really about, it's really about the art. It's really about the, the pleasure of creating this life that, that you like. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. And he says, and because there is no good or evil, we really should just think about what is beautiful. And so he begins not thinking about what is right or wrong in the world. He begins thinking about what is beautiful in the world. And we should really be concerned about the beauty. And so um, a good example of this would be uh, the red carpet. If you think about what's taking place on the red carpet, this is like his dream, is the red carpet is a bunch of people who, and we know this because there's an industry dedicated to it, who have lived incredibly immoral lives, but they're beautiful. And so we spend billions of dollars watching and thinking about them, not because they're morally good people, because that doesn't matter, but because they're beautiful people. And then we get to this man named Freud. And Freud's weird, man. He does some weird stuff. And I won't spend a whole lot of time on Freud. Um, But Freud, he takes all of this and he says, well, we've kind of come to the conclusion that the point of life is to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. What is the most pleasurable thing that we love as humans? Sex. And so the point of life is sex. And so, yeah, some of you guys are giggling. It's like, yeah, no, I know. It's, read Freud. He's weird. Don't read him. Um, anyway, and so he says that this is, this is foundational to life is all of life really boils down to sex and sexuality at the core, does this sound familiar? At the core of our identity is sex. It's what drives us. It's what motivates us. It's what we think about. And again, he plays off of this whole idea that there is no right and wrong, and so we should also apply that to sexual norms. We need to get rid of those as well, because that just stands in the way of us pursuing our own pleasures which is the point of life. And then finally, we get to this man named Wilhelm Reich. And what he does is he takes Freud and Marx and he puts them together. And he writes this book in 1936. See if this term sounds familiar, called The Sexual Revolution. He's actually the father of the sexual revolution. And he takes aim at the nuclear family. And he says, he says the nuclear family, having a mom and dad in the home, is the source of fascism. The reason is because it teaches you to worship and obey a dominant father figure, which makes you submissive to the ruling class. And so what he does is he he redefines oppression. See, oppression, in Marx's terms, was economic. You are keeping me from realizing the fruits of my labor. And then Wright comes along and he says, no, oppression is not external. Oppression is internal. Is you are keeping me from expressing who I believe that I am. And if that happens to be at the core of who I am, my sexual identity, 
If you do not allow me to express my sexual identity, you are repressive and oppressive. And this is why we see things like safe spaces and we hear people say that words are violence. That saying that we had growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Completely wrong. Because what he says is, if the most important thing about us is what's internal, and if the deepest desires of our heart are sexual, if you repress me sexually, you are doing violence to me. And so um, he traces, uh, um, Truman traces all of these thoughts, and he says, here's where this has ended up. He says, we have become a society full of radical, or some people call hyper-individualists. Is there is this dramatic turn inwards in which we value individual freedom, personal happiness, self-definition, and expression above all else. Now, you're thinking, I've never heard of half of these people before. I'm not even sure I understood half of what you just said. And so I don't think that applies to me. Or, you know, I'm a Christian. I don't believe those things. Mm, I bet you do. Sayings like this, I just need to find myself. You just need to be true to yourself. You need to follow your heart. You need to live your truth. All of those are perfect examples of this radical individualism that everyone, every single one of us, because it's the water that we swim in, it's the air that we breathe, have bought into. And if any institutions or traditions or communities or authorities get in our way, we will either eliminate them or we will deconstruct them so that they will reflect our values, which we see happening in the world today. And here's the problem. It's destroying us. Like, not just as Christians, it's destroying us. I'll get to that in a moment. But like, as people, it's destroying us. Is how many times do we have to read that this is the most lonely, depressed, anxious, and hopeless generation before we go, maybe we've gone wrong somewhere. Maybe this worldview that we've bought into isn't living up to its promises this idea of complete autonomy and freedom, maybe there's something that's off about this. It's no wonder that we can't maintain relationships or get along and we have trust and commitment issues is because we're just a bunch of little dictators running around as narcissists. It's taking place in the church, of course, as well, because it's, it's something that all of us are guilty of. And, and, and by the way, if you want to um, look at, pick your favorite hot topic culturally, like where there's a lot of conflict. My bet is that at the core of that conflict is some kind of radical individualism. So uh, things like sexual ethics, abortion, identity politics, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, economic inequality. At the bottom of all of those things is a, an attitude of radical individualism. It's happening in the church as well. I've been in the church my whole life. And um, I, I am also guilty of this, is we walk into church and we go, Jesus, what can you do for me? Church, how are you going to meet my needs this weekend? We come in as consumers instead of contributors. And what it does is when things don't go our way, we either leave the church or we leave the faith. Because I'm here for me, and if you do not meet my needs, I'm out. So here's the bottom line. You cannot be a radical individualist and a follower of Jesus. They're incompatible. You can't do it. You cannot be a radical individualist 
and a follower of Jesus. Those things don't go together. In fact, here's what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He's saying, you wanna know what true worship is? It's not just singing some songs, that's great. If you wanna get to what the heart of worship really is, it's about becoming a living sacrifice which by the way is the complete opposite of radical individualism. Those are on the polar opposite ends of the spectrum. You can be a living sacrifice or you can be a radical individualist, but you cannot be both. And he says to offer up our bodies. Here's what he means by this. He means you have to offer up your entire life, your whole being, every arena of your life. You come and you say, this is yours. It's no longer mine. Emotionally, physically, relationally, financially, everything is yours, which radical individualism says it's my money, it's my body, it's my time, it's my wants, it's my desires. Following Jesus says, none of those things are mine anymore. And so there's this inherent tension between being a Jesus follower and, to be honest, a person living in the West. And so let's dissect what he's saying here. He's saying that we have to be a living uh, we have to be a living sacrifice, which is like intentionally paradoxical. We have to be a, a, a living, dying person. What does he mean by that? Well, we have to be a living person because we have to live for him. We have to get up every day and say, my life is not my own. Today, I live for you. It is your opinions. It is what you want for my life. It is, it is what you have in store for me. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if I don't like it, I will live for you today. And then it's the dying and any kind of desires that I have that don't match up with that, any direction that I want to go that is in the opposite of where I'm dead to it because I'm a living sacrifice. Continues on, he says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. You know how you conform to the patterns of this world? You just go and you open up your mind and you say, now fill it up, world. <laughs> Whatever you got. Netflix, just go. Yeah, download it on me. Let's go. Internet, yep, download it. I'm in, you know? Whatever you're trying to sell me, I'm buying. Let's go. You don't have to do anything to be conformed to the patterns of this world. All you have to do is just show up and go, what are you selling me? I'm in. What do you got? Because, again, it's the water that we swim in. You don't have to try to be conformed. You are conforming. See, everybody's going to be shaped by someone or something. And if you don't know what it is, then, and you're not actively pursuing it, it's just going to be whatever the water is that you're swimming in. That's the culture that we're at. Radical individualism, that's what's going to shape me. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It says here is that we have to be intentional about not conforming to the patterns, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. I've told you that I've been restoring this truck forever. It's an old 50s pickup truck, and there's two parts to restoring, and you could call it renewing if you want. I think those words are interchangeable. One part is I have to get rid of the old. So like if you try to put on a new, um, new paint, over this old paint and body filler, what's going to happen is it's either going to peel, it's going to flake, it's going to crack, it's going to be a mess, you're going to have rust that comes through. I mean, you, it's, if you want to do it right, what you have to do is you have to, have to take it all the way down to bare metal and then build your way back up again. That's what has to happen with us. Is so many of us, we have for so long, whether we realize it or not, 
our minds have been conformed to the patterns of this world, that we have to get rid of all of those patterns just continually to go, okay, now what have I bought into that I think is intuitive, that is inherent, that is real, and yet it is actually just another pattern of this world. I got to get rid of that so that my mind can be transformed by what it means to follow Jesus. So many of the things that we believe is, oh yeah, no, this would be Jesus. Like, let me give you one that's just going to really anger you. This is off the top of my head. I'm on a lot of medicine, so we'll see how it goes. Um, Like, Jesus is a capitalist. Is that right? I don't know. You've never thought about it, though, have you? Jesus is a socialist. Is that right? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But have you wrestled with it before? Have you thought about it? No, because you have just assumed, well, this is society I live in. It's done pretty well for me, and so this is where I'm going to go. Is we have, to, we, have to, we have to see, are these patterns that I've bought into, are they true or are they not? And if they're not, what I need to do is get rid of them, and then I need to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Oh my goodness, Paul, if Paul came today, he'd be like, oh my gosh, I should have, oh, I should have elaborated on that one. Do not think more highly of yourself. Have you seen the selfies? I mean, that is like, (laughs) what? That's crazy. But I'm awesome. It's like, okay, all right. Okay. um, But rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. What it says here is, is as your mind is, being transformed, you're going to have a new view on yourself and on God. Because as you rid yourself of the patterns of this world, the radical individualism, it's going to, you're going to start to see yourself differently. And you're going to start to see God differently. And and what's going to happen is you're going to see yourself not based on how much stuff you have or your beauty or your success or your, your pleasures or, no, no, those things will become irrelevant as you get rid of those patterns. What will happen is you'll begin to see yourself as a child of God and you'll begin to see yourself as forgiven and loved. And so your mind will begin to, to transform and so your outlook will begin to, begin to change. Now, if I stopped here in this verse, our natural tendency, at least mine, is, okay, I have to get rid of these thoughts and patterns of behavior, and then I need to start these new ones that are more in line with Jesus. And so what I'm going to do is, this is me, maybe this is you, is I'm going to go and I'm going to study, I'm going to listen to some podcasts, I'm going to go home and try super, super hard to think better thoughts, and we're going to be more like Jesus. But that itself is an individualist thinking. That's one. It's all about what's happening psychologically. And the other is, I can fix this. Again, this is the water that we swim in, and so this is natural to us, but that's not what Paul says we have to do. Paul says, if you want to get rid of the conforming to the world, and if you want to be transformed, you know what you have to do? Here's what he says. For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same functions, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. Here's what he says. He says, if you want to be transformed, you know what you need to do? Get in community, which is not where we thought we were going with this. I want my mind to be transformed. I want to look less like the patterns of the world. And how am I going to do that? By being around his people. 
So if you want, I'm just going to be like really clear here. If you want to experience transformation in your life and become more like Jesus, one of the primary ways it's going to happen is in community. This is how we were made. This is, this is the, the example that we see within the scriptures. And here's the bottom line. Here's kind of the deal. Is you cannot be a follower of Jesus without being in a community. It's just, it's not possible. Radical individual, Cody, is, Cody radical, you know what I'm saying. There's a lot of medicine happening here. I'm, I'm like three minutes away from being done. Um, I'll go home and take a nap. Cody's tired. Um, I don't even remember what I was saying. <laughs> I really don't. I am, just, I am lost right now. Who are you guys? Yeah, who are you guys? And how did we get here? Um, community, there we go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Ah, okay. Doyle's out of town. He's now watching this. Anyway, um, think about this. When we become Christ followers, what happens is um, we become a new creation and we become a part of a new family. And so like when my third son um, or my third child, who's also Jed, when Jed was born, (laughs) it's going bad, it's going quick. When Jed was born, that day, he not only had a father and a mother, but he also had a brother and a sister. And what we want to do as radical individualists is we go, I'm born again, and now I have a heavenly father, but I don't really like my siblings. Like, they're kind of obnoxious. Have you been around them before? I just don't want to deal with them. I'm just going to, it's just going to be me and my heavenly father, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to do this walk together, and I'm going to ignore the rest of the family. Can you imagine how that would go at your house? If Jed came in, he goes, Dad, love you, man. We're buds. I love hanging out. Your kids, though? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Can we put them on the other side of the house? Can we have a dividing line where it's like me and you, we hang, and then they're over there? No, that wouldn't work. Because being a part of the family means that we are not only related to our Heavenly Father, but to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so spiritual growth becomes equally as important connecting with one another as it is connecting with God. Which again, we don't like that idea. I want to connect with God. It's me and him. We do this kind of private, individual faith. And he says, that's never how I designed this. Yeah, it's me and you, and then me, you, and them. That's what this was supposed to look like. And so real quick, I'm just going to shoot you straight on this community thing. First one is this, community is messy. Just know going into it, when you enter into community, it will be messy. But that is not a bug, that is a feature. That's how it's supposed to be. Because that's how you change. You go into it where it's a bunch of people just like you who agree with you, you're never going to grow. Think about the people that Jesus called together. So I'm going um, to have Matthew, and um, I'm going to have Peter, and it's going to be like Ben Shapiro and AOC, and we're going to come together, and you guys are going to get along. Ready? Let's go. Why would he do that? Why would he take people that are just so different from one another because he goes, as I teach you what it looks like to follow me, this is how you're going to live it out. This is how you're going to put it into practice is within this community right here. Community also takes commitment. Is we want community as long as it's convenient. As long as it doesn't get in the way of any of our other freedoms. 
But as soon as it becomes something that we have to contribute to, we go, "Mm, I'm not sure I want community that bad anymore. Because what we think is, we think church is much more like a country club than it is a family. But that's not the language that the New Testament uses. It calls us brother and sister. See, a country club is, I come, I can consume, I get to leave and come and go as I please. But a family is, I come in here, I contribute, and I don't get to just take off when I want to. And that's what he had in mind. I always tell people, if you want to grow spiritually, here's the number one thing that you can do. Stay put. Stay right where you're at. Don't go try to find a better church. Don't go find a better group. Don't go by. No, you will just, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to find that. It'll never happen. Stay put. Unless there's outright heresy or some kind of abuse, stay where you're at. Keep investing in that community. And the community takes intentionality. Is... Um, you will not fall into a great community by accident. I know this because every single week I meet people here who have been here for years and I have never seen them before. And I go, how have you been here for so long and I've never met you before? Well, you know, we come in the weekends and, wait, so that's all you've ever done? You've only sat in the chairs for one hour on the week. Oh, now I see why I have never met you before. Because you've never been in community before. It takes intentionality, and it's not just intentional of getting a community, but it's a community that is intentional, meaning it is not just hanging out with a group of friends and we go, well, we all like golf, and so this is my community. No, it is people coming together with the same goal in mind, saying we want to become more like Jesus, and so we're going to help each other do that. It's an intentional community. This is why we spend so much time and energy and resources trying to get you guys into community because we believe this is at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. And so here's the deal. Um, My dad is a salesman. I am not. I'm allergic to salesmanship. I always, like my entire life, I don't know if it's because my dad was always selling me on stuff and I go, I know you're lying, right? And I mean, not lying. I know you're not telling me the whole story, dude. And he's like, no, it'll be great. We're going to clean the garage together. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. Um, And so whenever he like tries to come up with this new idea, he's like, okay, and then we could do this and this and this and this. And I go, dude, don't try to sell me on something. I'm not interested in that. So I'm not going to sell you. I'm going to show you. I'm not going to sell you on anything, unrooted, nothing like that. I'm just going to show you. If you are serious about following Jesus, this is going to be how you're going to do it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this church and for this um, opportunity to grow in this next season uh, closer to you and closer to one another. And um, Lord, I just thank you for the, the community life center that you have provided for us where we get to have a place where we meet people and um, we get to build community. And so, Lord God, um, I thank you for uh, I thank you for helping me make it through this sermon. Through your name, we pray. Amen. All right, will you guys stand up with me? Thank you so much for being here. Go check out the CLC. Get signed up. Other than that, we'll see you next week. And God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we have live services on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings in our West Auditorium, or you can watch live online at scgchurch.org or on our YouTube and Facebook.